Welcome to the Tom Nelson podcast. I have Malcolm Roberts here. And Malcolm, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, I was born in India in 1955 for a Welsh uh, father and Australian mother. Then I stayed in India with my family until about the age of seven and then moved to Australia because they wanted to give me a better education. So I've moved around quite a lot in Australia uh, as, as a child and as an adult. After high school, I went to uh, university and studied mining engineering and got an honours degree in that. And then I decided I better go and learn something. So Tom, then I've worked as a, an underground coalface miner where I'd worked uh, during summer vacations from university. And that was really uh, very, very useful to me. And one of the things that people, I know, I know you'll get onto the topic of climate later. So one of the things that's very uh, important for me is engineers apply what scientists find. Scientists go and find the raw knowledge, the, the basic material and cause and effect. And then we as engineers apply that. Now I didn't work much as an engineer because I wanted to get into management and that's, I love the leadership, but nonetheless, that's the way I was trained. And engineers understand the scientific process because they have to apply the science. So they check that before they apply it. And the other thing about engineers is that if we make a mistake, someone can die. So if a bridge collapses as a civil, after a civil engineer has designed it, then the civil engineer is liable. And, and as a mining engineer, I was taught about atmospheric gases, including carbon dioxide. And it was all pretty basic stuff to me. And then after graduation, when I was working as a miner, I'd go to night school or sometimes if I was working night shift, go to day school, uh, technical college and get a more practical understanding of atmospheric gases and other aspects of mining. So I have that under my belt. Then I've worked as a miner for a few years. And then Australians have, because we're tucked way down under Tom, Australians have a desire to travel. You know, the rest of the world's somewhere else. We're only, what, tiny proportion of the world's population, 26 million out of, what, 8 billion? So we're a tiny proportion, and we, we know that there are significant other countries in the world that influence us. And so we, most of us do a lot of traveling. So I wanted to go to the United States because the United States mining conditions, even though we, we look largely to Britain, American mining conditions were similar to Australia's. We use mostly American equipment underground in Australia and in the open cuts. And so I went and worked in America. I worked for Peabody Coal Company or Energy Company as it is now and Consolidation Coal Company loved America and I spent 15 months going broke, uh, just traveling through all 50 of your states, learning about the country. I was fascinated. I love Americans. I don't think much of your government, whether it's Republican or, or Democrat, they've sold you out just as our country, uh, just as our governments have, uh, Canadian governments have also done that New Zealand governments, but nonetheless, I loved America. I traveled through all 50 states. I learned a lot about your country. And then I sold my car, bought a plane ticket home. And then I worked as an engineer for a little while, uh, while I was getting my statutory qualifications, then I became a mine manager. And, and I really loved becoming a, a mine manager. And then um, I got tired of the bean counters in the company. I was employed in one of the biggest coal companies in Australia. I got tired of the bean counters calling the shots because they didn't really know what they were doing. So I decided if you can't beat them, join them. So I did an MBA at the University of Chicago. I met my wife there. Um, I was going to stay in the States. Uh, I had a number of job offers and a very, very um, exciting opportunity came up to lead the development of a radically new underground coal mine in Australia. So I took that. My wife and I came back. She, my wife's American. Then we worked for a few years there and I got tired of the way that 
consortium was led by an American company that didn't have practical, uh, the, the president of the company didn't have practical experience, didn't know what he was doing. And I could see where that was going. And, uh, and so I left, formed a consulting uh, company and my wife and I consulted overseas, America, New Zealand, uh, lectured various places around the world, focused on leadership and improving performance. Then I, I spent 12 months actually turning around a, a fairly complicated mine in New Zealand. And that was challenging. But we made big difference there, and but my head was down, um, and I was into into the the mind. So I didn't really pay much attention to what was going on around me. But I learned, but that was two thousand and five. So after early two thousand six, I came back to Australia, and I was told that carbon dioxide is a killer gas. It's going to destroy the planet. It's going to fry us all. And I thought this is crap. So, um, but I then I thought, who's little old me? To, to think that, you know, go, get, go against thousands of politicians and thousands of scientists and all these eminent people that we're told about. But it didn't sit right. So I started, someone called me up and said, would, would I help him? Um, to, Viv Forbes, I don't know if you know Viv, but he, he, he's, he's gone around the world now. Um, he's in his 80s. He's been a very strong fighter for freedom. And he, he's, a, he's a geologist, so he's a scientist. He's developed coal mines, so he's a miner. And above all, he's a farmer. So he understands the, 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 the way nature works. And, and he's very, very intelligent and he can put things together. And he's been a fighter for freedom ever since he was about 20. So he's had 60 years of this and he just sniffed a complete crock. So he, he said, would I help him uh, pursue this? So I did, all I was doing was helping him write articles. But for me, I've got to get the data before I open my mouth. So I pursued the science and I realized it was all rubbish. And so then I started putting the science out in the open and inviting people to challenge me. Um, the best form of scrutiny and no one would. Uh, a couple of trolls did, but you know, they, when you just simply say, well, here's the facts, here are the facts and where's your evidence, they run away. So anyway, then I started, that, that led me to the United Nations uh, driving this scam and uh, climate scam and that led me to understanding the United Nations and how corrupt and incompetent and dishonest it is. Um, and then that led me to understanding what drove the formation of the United Nations and what drives the UN agenda right now. Um, so I, I started getting enmeshed in that, immersed in that. Um, I started, it was all voluntary. And then after about 12 months, I thought, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And I realized, I sat down and just took a took a few minutes and I realized number one was to protect freedom. That's what this issue is about. Climate has got nothing to do with the environment. It's got nothing to do with climate. It is all about destroying human freedom to control people. Um, we can talk about that later. So protect freedom. The second one was restore scientific integrity. I mean, if we look around things like phones and, and iPods and all the rest of it, our cars, our buildings all come from science and that's come in an, the only thing unprecedented in the last 150 years is nothing to do with climate is unprecedented, but the remarkable development of human society and civilization, particularly our material wealth, that has come at enormous speed. It's come at lightning speed from about 1850 onwards. And, and it's affected, it's increased our longevity, it's increased our ease, our comfort, our safety, our security, our options, our choices, our opportunity to travel, engage with each other. Everything has just been just been 
startlingly Im impressive about humanity in the last 170 years. We had a few disturbances around the 1970s, 1960s with, because people, technology marched ahead of our knowledge of the environment. We did have some genuine environmental issues, but science fixed them as well. And we are better off now. Our environment is better protected uh, than it was before uh, industrialization. That's quite clear and we can talk more about that. So the second one was to restore scientific integrity because it's absolutely essential. If you don't have integrity in science, bridges fall down and you don't get progress. Um, then the third one was to protect the environment because I could see what was happening with the climate con, it was actually destroying the environment, the impacts of that, that uh, erroneous beliefs. The fourth one was to protect our economy because at its, at its core, climate, the, the allegations that climate alarmism is about controlling people and it's about controlling energy and that means economic disaster. And we can see that it's happening around the world right now in the Western world. Um, and China and other countries that are using our, our secret for success, our strategies for success and using the cheapest form of energy available are rocketing ahead of us. And the last one, the last of the aims I realized I was pursuing was to restore some spiritual connection with nature because these lunatics in the United Nations and some of the large corporations who are benefiting and pushing climate alarm, they're essentially saying that this planet around us, this, this speck in the universe is controlled by humans and it's absolute bullshit and it's dangerous bullshit. I believe there's a spirit. I believe that spirit guides us. I won't say he, I'll say she, she guides us. It's running through nature. It's running through the universe. Um, it's got a lot to do with our creator, whether we're in touch with that or not impacts our happiness and our emotional stability and our mental health. And what I can see is the United Nations has been destroying people's health, particularly children's health, replacing optimism and progress with fear and guilt. And that is so destroying. Uh, and, and also there's a, there's an enormous joy and a sense of abundance and connection when we're in touch with nature and we're in touch with with the spirit. So these are the things to protect freedom or restore freedom, protect scientific integrity, um, protect the environment, uh, restore economic prosperity and uh, restore the spiritual connection with nature. I was pushing this, getting into debates, flying around the country at my own cost, speaking at rallies to oppose the carbon dioxide tax and emissions trading scheme. Um, and then we had a, a politician in, in, uh, in Australia called Pauline Hanson. And uh, she had a forum not far in, in the rural area, not far from me. Uh, and Ian Plymer was due to speak. Yeah. Wonderful man, a very, very talented communicator as well as scientist. And he was due to speak there and he couldn't speak because his mother was ill. So he asked me to stand in for him. So I did. And that's how I met Pauline. And, uh, and then we had the 2016 election. She asked me to stand beside her because she wanted a strong speaker on the floor of the Senate if she got in. We actually, scri actually scraped in and then uh, got into the Senate and my first speech, I told them we need to exit from the United, United Nations. I exposed the climate ca uh, scam and a few other things. And then I'm very much a believer in free enterprise, personal enterprise. And um, then I got knocked out of the Senate because of dual citizenship. I actually, I was the only one who wasn't a dual citizen, but uh, at the time of nomination, I technically was. So therefore I got knocked out. I came back in 2019, but in the course 
of the first stint in the Senate from 2016 to 2017, I held the government's scientific agency advising it on climate accountable. And Tim Ball, who, who has died recently, you know, I had, I had many interactions with Tim. I brought him down to Australia, uh, along with Tony Heller, who came at his own cost. But um, Tim was a marvelous person. So I benefited so much from meeting people like Tim, Tim Ball, Tony Heller, Ian Plymer. So um, now what, what I'm doing is, is recognizing that even though we have got the absolute goods on the CSIRO, which is the government scientific agency advising it on climate, it's very hard to make politicians wake up and tell the truth. So now that the battle for me in, in parliament is actually trying to get people to acknowledge what is reality because politicians don't like reality. So that's, that's me. Okay. That's fantastic stuff. Are you getting any other support from other politicians in Australia at all with your climate realism? Yes, but not as much as we would have expected. And this is what happens. There's a prominent climate skeptic in this country named Senator Matthew Canavan. And he's very intelligent, very bright. He was in the National Party as a, as a political staffer to Barnaby Joyce, who was a very, he was Australia's most colorful uh, and effective speaker on the climate bullshit, exposing it. Uh, that was around 2013. And Matt was Barnaby Joyce's chief of staff. Now, Barnaby Joyce moved into state and joined the House of Representatives. And so Matt Canavan replaced him in Queensland for as a senator. And I know Matt's a skeptic, but I held another uh, liberal accountable for some of the statements the Liberal Party was pushing. And I'll, I'll, I'll summarize this in a, in a minute so you get the full picture. But when I met Ian McDonald in an office here in Brisbane, he showed me a, 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 a speech from Senator Canavan, who I knew was a skeptic. And he was saying in his speech in 2015, that we need to cut carbon dioxide from human activity because of the climate. So what had happened, I believe, is that Matt was looking for Senate, was looking for cabinet appointment. Barnaby Joyce was looking for cabinet appointment under a woke prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who was dishonest about climate. And so they toned down their skepticism and actually embraced subsidies for uh, inefficient and destructive and unreliable and unsafe wind and solar, solar uh, systems, which are generation uh, also then had to talk about how we need to cut carbon dioxide so they flipped and when people flip the most important damage they do if it's not honest is that they endorse the opposition view so the reason for saying that is the liberal party um liberal party which is supposed to be the conservative party but it's gone woke in this country just like the conservatives in canada were until pierre polyver took over just like the Republicans, the rhinos in America, just like some of the Tories in Britain. The Liberal Party was at least 60% climate skeptics in the early 2000s, probably more like 90%. Now they're pushing the same policies from the UN that the Labor Party is pushing. And yet there are many people in the Liberal Party and the National Party who form a coalition that support what I'm doing, but they won't say so publicly. So I don't really have support and they won't stand up in the Senate floor, but there are some, there's Alex Antic, there's Gerard uh, Rennick, Matt Canavan now, because I've been exposing what he did and flipping, he's now coming back to talking as a conservative uh, and, and also as a climate realist. And for a while there, Matt would speak in Canberra as a climate alarmist and go to central Queensland where the coal miners votes are and speak as a climate realist. 
when I pointed that out, he's he's now much more consistent, but he's not embraced it completely. But he he is coming back to telling the truth. Uh, now the Labor Party, which is a socialist party, a bit like your Democrats and just as lost, they have a number of people. They used to be the Workers Party, Tom. So they and they have a, a small number of people who are remnants from the old Labor Party, which was a very good party. It was socialist, but at least it was it, it had the workers workers uh, needs in mind. And so there are some Labor's, Labor uh, senators and MPs who still hark back to the old days when they supported workers. They know that this climate alarmism is crap. And so I can speak very strongly against climate alarmism in the Senate, get no support other than from Pauline Hanson and a couple of Liberals. And when it comes to the vote, get only Pauline support. And then I can walk outside and the Labor Party people will be patting me on the back saying, keep going, keep going. You know, so to answer your question, there is no strong support outwardly, publicly or politically, but there is very strong support morally and emotionally and personally. But these people subjugate themselves to the party and they vote according to what the power brokers tell them. And the power brokers in the Labor Party, the socialists and the liberal nationals who are also now socialists and woke, both support the international agenda. So the Liberals now, despite the previous election uh, in 2020, no, 2019, that's right. The, the Liberals were in government and they came out and said they opposed 2050 net zero from the United Nations. And they smashed the Labor Party. The Labor Party was expected to, to win. They smashed the Labor Party on that issue and the Liberals sneaked home and won government again. Then within months of, of winning government, they adopted 2050 net zero. So, I mean, this is how dishonest the whole thing is. So, yeah, we get a lot of personal support, but not much political support because uh, they're about, gutless. Uh, how about the voters in Australia? What percent of them are eager to give up their cars and stop eating meat and pay carbon taxes? <laughs> very, very few, but most of them are asleep. An increasing number, thanks to COVID, uh, COVID has been a gross mismanagement of people's uh, lives, of people's resources, of taxpayer funds. And people are now starting to wake up. They're, they're really attuned to what the United Nations and World Economic Forum have, have been doing with COVID and the lies and deceit from both sides of politics in this country, which, which work together on COVID mismanagement to control people. Uh, so, so as a result of COVID, many, many people are awake. Now, I have a very good friend, Paul Evans, who was in the Galileo movement with me. We were volunteers exposing the climate scam. And he joined me as one of my staff when I was in the Senate from 2016 to 2017. And he said back in 2013, 2014, he said, you know, we're really facing an uphill battle here. It's hard to change the narrative when we got the mouthpiece media involved and in pushing the, the climate alarmism. He said, I don't think, he, he was very, very sincere, very continued working very hard as a volunteer on the climate issue. But he said, I don't think we'll get anywhere until people feel the pain. And I thought, nah, we're going to keep going. So we kept going. Uh, but now I realize that he's right because it's been, there's been so much indoctrination. And Tom, with the Labor Party having won the last election uh, just last year, there is pain coming. There is huge pain coming. Costs of living are rising dramatically. Energy prices are shooting through the roof. We're joining the basket cases in the United States, the ca Canadians who are destroying their energy sector, the Europeans, the Germans, uh, and people are now starting to question. 
they're not questioning the climate science yet, they're questioning the policies, which is the first step. So what, what I've done in the early days of, of my climate, uh, pushing the climate skepticism, being a climate realist, I was getting the science, putting it in public, and some of the federal MPs at the time took notice. They only, they only nibbled. And then to try, and, to try and up the pressure, I then exposed the corruption in the United States to driving the climate scam and the corruption in Australia. And uh, they went silent. I thought they'd stir up and want to protect the taxpayers, but they didn't. They, they were afraid of it. And then I started working on what, what are the motives behind the climate scam. And then they went deadly silent because there are, some of their own buddies were involved. Uh, so, so when I got into the Senate for the first time in 2016, instead of presenting material, I said, where's your material? And I held the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific Industry Research Organization accountable because it was the government's chief advisor. And, and we can talk about them more later. But what I did was I said, where is your science? I said to the Greens party, where is your science? Give me the data. I challenged them to debate. I invited them to present the logical scientific points because all science comes down to logical scientific points, which is simply empirical scientific evidence, data, observations presented with a, a logical scientific framework that proves cause and effect. And before you embark on a policy, doesn't matter what sort of policy is, if it's supposed to be based on science, you must start with the basic cause and effect. You must be able to state the specific impact of carbon dioxide from human activity on any climate factor, whether it's temperature or ocean temperature or atmospheric temperature or salinity, ocean salinity or ocean alkalinity or snowfall or storm frequency, severity, duration or drought frequency, severity, duration. We have all this extreme weather going on around us. Nothing's changed, but they, pre they present each storm as a problem um, or as something never happened before. Now, what, what, what I've been asking for is the specific evidence that shows carbon dioxide has a specific effect on temperature. No one's been able to do that. That is the fundamental basis for policy because until you have that, you don't have any, able, any ability to measure the impact of what you're trying to do. You can't come up with different alternatives for policy. So you can't really come up with a solid policy. Then they make legislation based on that policy and you can't track the implementation of that legislation and the impact it's having. So it all starts with that specific effect of human carbon dioxide on any aspect of temperature or climate. And they haven't been able to do that. They just have no, never done that. That's fundamental basis. So the whole thing's a scam. What I really appreciated was having the ear of Tim Ball. I would call Tim Ball and just say, you got a few minutes. And when you're, when you're talking with Tim, it can be an hour. Because Tim, he was a true Renaissance man. There were very few people like him left alive today. Um, but Tim understood the science at a fundamental level. He understood the, basics, the, the basic physics, chemistry. Such a well-read man. He also understood how to apply that science. He also understood weather. He understood climate. And he's very, very practical. He didn't start in academia. He started as a practical person in the community in Britain. And then he did weather surveillance uh, on flights across the Arctic as part of the Canadian Air Force. So he understood what was going on. He understood, he understood politics from his wide reading. He's just a, such a, he was such a natural gifted person. He understood politics. He understood human behavior. He understood um, bureaucracy. He understood governance. He understood policy development. He understood 
um, what drives people, humans' needs. He understood people. And he could put it down into relatable stories. And, you know, I, I said to him after I was preparing my maiden speech, the first speech in the Senate, and I'd known him for a few years, and I just called him up as I was preparing my maiden speech. And he just said, you know, Malcolm, it's really simple. He said, the sun shines down on the earth. It doesn't warm the atmosphere barely at all. It, it warms the earth's surface. And that surface includes the ocean surface and the land surface. And then the atmosphere touches the land and the atmosphere and it gets warm and then it rises. And he said, then you have latent heat of evaporation and condensation. What he was saying to me, and no one had ever said that to me, not even him in his previous conversations, but it's so damn simple. The atmosphere doesn't warm the surface, it cools the surface. And that is fundamental. And I mentioned that in my, in my first speech in the Senate and all the trolls and the lefties went berserk, you know, because they don't like being confronted. But it's simple little things like that, that, that I benefited from Tim Ball, as well as the more complex. And he was also aware intimately, along with Fred Singer, of the corruption in the United Nations that's driving this climate scam. He, he and Fred Singer for 40 years led the charge. They, they knew it when they first sniffed it. And, and we owe them a huge debt of gratitude, both dead now. How is the uh, coal business doing in Australia right now? I'm hearing that uh, they might be exporting some more coal to Europe or what's happening? The coal business is going really well because um, prices for coal are very, very high. I haven't looked in the last few months, but they, they've been very, very high. Unexpected. I've never, I would never have dreamt that thermal coal could get to $400 Australian a ton, but they have. They're normally around about 80 to 100. So the coal business is booming, but we can't burn it here. You know, we, we, we've still got uh, some power stations left, but they're shutting down power stations before the power stations need to be shut down. So we can export our coking coal, our, our met coal and our thermal coal to other countries and help them develop wind turbines, which they sell back to us at subsidized prices, raise our electricity prices, destroy our manufacturing and export that to China. So we export our coal, thermal and met to China they build wind turbines and solar panels. We subsidize them to bring them to Australia. We subsidize them to install them. We subsidize them to run them. That raises the cost of our electricity, which destroys manufacturing because today, manufacturing costs, the largest cost category of manufacturing anywhere in the world is electricity. It's no longer labor. So when you raise electricity prices artificially, you're destroying your manufacturing sector. So we are destroying our economy. We're destroying our defense security. We're destroying our employment, destroying our jobs, exporting to China, and then subsidizing the Chinese to develop wind turbines, which further worsen it. And, and the, the environmental destruction of solar panels and wind turbines adds another dimension. And, and people are just so unaware of that. So when you develop a coal mine in this country, for every if a surface coal mine, for every hectare or acre of land you disturb in a year, to uncover the coal, you have to pay a bond to the government, state government. You reclaim that bond, you get that bond back when you reclaim it after mining. If you don't reclaim it, you don't get the bond back. So that's what happens. Coal companies must reclaim to get the bond back and to get future leases. People with wind turbines and solar panels, no bond. They just walk away from their installations when they're either going broke or when they run out of life. And, you know, and then they talk about these things as renewable. The only thing renewable about solar and wind energy is the fact that you have to renew the basic generators every 10 to 12 years. 
So wind turbines last 10 to 12 years, maybe 15 years if you're lucky. Um, and same with solar panels. And then you have to replace the damn things. They're not at all renewable. They're, they're resource expensive, as you know. They drive up the cost of electricity, which impoverishes people, and they, they, they most hurt the poor. The number one factor that's driven human progress in the last 100, 150, 170 years, up, up until about 1990s, was the relentless reduction in energy prices, whether it was oil or natural gas or coal, um, price of electricity, were all coming down relentlessly. And that's what drove human progress because the lower your energy costs, the higher your productivity. The higher your productivity, the greater your prosperity. The greater the prosperity, more wealth everyone has. What we've done in the 1990s under a conservative government led by John Howard and John Anderson, we reversed that decrease in, in electricity prices and we started accelerating prices artificially by subsidizing inefficient, unreliable, dangerous solar and wind and shutting down coal and not even talking about nuclear. So, I mean, this is a, this is a, a pathway to insanity and economic, uh, it's, we're economic kamikaze pilots committing suicide economically. Do you think uh, blackouts are coming then in Australia as they try to run oh, the economy? without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. They're realizing now that the sun doesn't shine at night, and so we can't get solar power during the night. They're realizing that wind power some, quite often dies in the night, so we haven't got that. They're recognizing that at peak hour, which is early in the morning and late in the afternoon or early evening, there's not much solar and wind, and they need baseload. So now they're telling us more bullshit. They're saying batteries will power this. You know, batteries will last, even if we could do everything, would last just a few minutes. And, and we haven't got that much uh, raw materials in the world to be able to make battery backup for the, for the 12 hours, let alone for three days if, the, if you've got no wind and, and cloudy, cloudy skies. So, I mean, it's just insanity. We have a snowy, snowy mountain scheme in Australia, which develops hydroelectricity irrigation scheme, which has been wonderful. Um, that was developed in the 60s and 70s. Now what's happened is Malcolm Turnbull, who's the woke prime minister I mentioned a little while ago, supposedly a conservative, but really a socialist. Um, he was trying to push solar and wind. And by the way, his son is an investor in, uh, in solar, I understand. So he was pushing, Malcolm Turnbull, the prime minister, was pushing solar and wind. But at that time, the Liberal Party and the National Party was still had a lot of skeptics in them who were willing to speak up. And they did. So he was caught. He couldn't fulfill his aims for solar and wind. So he developed Snowy 2, which is a hydro pump storage system. So you know what happens there. The, the water flows out of the dams at peak hour, early in the morning and late in the evening, generates electricity. And then with cheap solar and wind, you pump it back uphill and into the dam and then go through that like that uh, every day. Of course, now the problems are that you, you also pump uphill mostly at night because that's when you're you've got the least demand well there's no sun shining at night and there's very little wind shining at wind blowing at night so in reality the only thing that'll make pump storage work is coal-fired power stations but they're destroying them but but let, let's just so one of the things they said was that uh, well f well first of all you can only make this work if your peak hour prices are very high which means your system has failed because you've distorted the price because of solar and wind, you've distorted the price and you've cut back on, on your uh, generating capacity, which raises prices in high demand periods. 
So for a start, the very notion that you're going to have um, a pump storage system signals that you've destroyed your electricity grid. Secondly, the second reason for having Snowy was to have a reduced carbon dioxide intensity. You know, we'd have less in, less carbon dioxide per a kilowatt hour of electricity used. Well, what happens when you're generating electricity, for each unit of electricity you're generating when the water flows downhill in your pump storage, it requires about 1.3, some say 1.5 units of electricity to pump it uphill because of the friction losses and the inefficiencies. Where are we going to get that from? We're going to get that from coal. So instead of having one unit of electricity from coal, we're going to have 1.5 units of electricity from coal, which increases the carbon dioxide intensity. This is so full of lies. And, and, and when the government proposed, um, see, the whole thing is driven by a lie on climate. When the government proposed this nonsense, they did a business case, but then wouldn't release it. We know why they wouldn't release it, because it's not efficient. And they did no cost-benefit analysis. So the whole thing is just based on bullshit, just like the whole climate scam. Uh, how do you think this is going to play out if you have to look ahead five or 10 years? How is sanity going to come back? Well, we're, we're, um, thanks to COVID, Tom, people really started to wake up. Still a small proportion, probably no more than 15%. But people, young people in particular, who had no interest in politics and who've been fed this climate crap since they were in primary school, elementary school, they've been indoctrinated in climate that humans are destroying the planet. And so they never really thought about it. But during COVID, we had a lot of young people in their 20s, 30s, 40s saying, this is rubbish. I'm not, and, and we noticed it particularly amongst the health freaks or the, the, the people who are conscious of, of human health. And they tend to be largely the young and they, they're awake to what's going on. And they saw what happened with COVID. And we didn't have much of a presence on Instagram because Instagram was generally younger people. But when, when I was, the first one to start really speaking out strongly against the, the COVID mismanagement and the UN's control of the COVID mismanagement in our country, a lot of young people started following me. And so initially I would post on COVID. And then as, as we got more experience with Instagram, I'd post a couple of posts on climate and the climate posts usually didn't do very well. But what I noticed as the more COVID went on, the climate posts got more and more attractive to people because they could see, and they told me this, they could see that this was a scam. The COVID mismanagement was a scam driven by the UN and they're starting to see the same things in climate. And now they know it's bullshit, but that's still only a small proportion. So what I'm saying is that the COVID mismanagement has been a wonderful eye opener, but it's been a wonderful eye opener for younger people in particular, but people in general, as to the way the UN's working. And so they're now starting to switch on to the reality that climate is a climate scam. So people are waking up. People are definitely saying, I am not paying more for electricity to protect your so-called climate uh, emergency, your climate breakdown. They're not willing to do that. They're wanting you guys to do it in America and they're wanting Canadians to do it. But they also are starting to realize basic insanity we're exporting our coal to China who send back manufactured goods, but we can't use our coal here. They're starting to see gas prices dramatically rise and the government now nationalized basically the coal, uh, the, the gas industry. So they're starting to see a lot of insanity and inconsistencies. And instead of sitting there and accepting it, they get, they're thinking. So what will eventually happen, I think there'll be a lot of pain in five years time, but people may have woken up by then and we might start seeing some of this unwound. So uh, we're working, my, my, my Senate office team and myself and 
we're working on exposing that before then. As I said, we've got the goods on the CSIRO, which I'm happy to go through with you to show just this case, but it's hard to get politicians to tell the truth and own up because most politicians are ignorant, stupid, and gutless. They won't stand up. They do what the party power broker tells them. You know, it's basically like this. Tom, do you want to keep being in, in, in the Senate? Do you want to keep being in the House of Representatives? If you do, then you'll vote the way the party power brokers tell you to vote. Don't think, just vote. And that's what happens. So they're, they're largely sheep. They're ignorant, stupid, and very gullible and gutless. They won't stand up. They won't represent the people. So I think more and more people are awake to that. They're awake to the fact that the government is working for a foreign agenda rather than the Australian people. So we see, um, I think we're going to see a, a lot of pain, but people waking. Speaking of young people waking up, do you happen to know an Australian called Shannon? Know of her? She's a tweeter coming from the health world, I think. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing all sorts of climate realist tweets from her. It makes me happy to see that. No, I don't know Shannon, but I'll write okay. a name down. That's Shannon JPEG. Okay. Yeah, Thank very, you. very interesting. Yeah. This, is, is she pretty um, effective on her tweets or you're just, you're just heartened by the fact that she's actually tweeting climate? I think she's effective. She's getting a lot of retweets. She got 96,000 followers. She does not okay, fit the great. typical demographic. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, what other uh, climate realists in Australia should we... Uh, do you like or should we know about? Well, as Ian Plymer, you know him. Uh, I've got to acknowledge someone who's, who's been dead a few years now, and that's Bob Carter. Professor Bob Carter did amazing work. There's William Kinnanmont. There's Mark Morano. He's very well liked here. There's Tony Heller, but they're Americans. I'd have to put together a list for you. I'm, I'm happy to do that later. But we've okay. also got people like Jim Simpson and Mike Elliott. Jim comes from a marketing background. Mike Elliott comes from a, a technical background in electronics, uh, and they're very effective. They run the climate's climate realists of five dock in Sydney, a suburb of Sydney, uh, Jeff Grimshaw. I I'd have to put together a list for you, but, but you know, they've got an interesting perspective on what they think about Australian politics. So it depends what your interest is, whether it's climate science, which you're all over, or, or it's uh, in which case Ian Plymer, Peter Ridd, of course. Yeah, I had him on here. So yeah, Joe Nova, I'm trying to get her not oh, successful yet. Jennifer, uh, see, yes. Mar yes, I'm trying to get her too. Well, if, if you need me to contact them, I'm happy to do so. Oh, I, I would love um, that. Another person, is very effective is David Evans. Oh, David yeah. Evans is Joe Nova's husband. And, yeah. and you know his background. He was he was working for the greenhouse uh, gas, whatever they call themselves in, in Australian government a, a few years ago. And he realized this was crap. So he just started to do his own work and, and, and realized it was nonsense and became a very effective climate skeptic. Yeah, I'd love to have him on here too. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you, if you need me to contact them, if you're already contacted them, that's fine. But if you need me to contact them, that's I'm happy to do that. Thank you. Yeah, I may well appeal to your help there. Do you want to talk at all about your uh, Brian Cox uh, interaction? or <laughs> Brian Cox, what a pathetic imitation of a scientist. Brian Cox had a, a session on Q&A, question and answer for the ABC, which is a, a government propaganda outfit. It's not a, an independent broadcaster. It's a government broadcaster. You can always tell what happens. They, they usually have someone who's going to be the authority figure for the night with the credibility, right? someone who's a conservative who's going to be the the target then they usually have the rest of them stacked up with people from some woke institute or cons i don't like using the left wing and right wing because they're not appropriate term symbols for me it's instead of left versus right it's control versus freedom so they usually get someone on the socialist side a couple of people on the socialist side from the so-called conservative government who's really a socialist and someone from the Labor Party who, who is a socialist. Um, and so they stacked the panel. So they did that with Brian Cox. And you can usually tell what's going to happen for the whole show. 
because the person who's going to be their expert sits next to the compare, right? And the others fan out from that on a big panel. And they usually get the, the, the expert to talk first and answer the first question. Because as you know, once you set the agenda, that's it. So Brian Cox was asked to speak first and he suddenly produced graphs, right? So he was well and truly prepared for the topic and he set the agenda and just to be in climate. And I was the target. So unfortunately for them, what happened was he showed a graph that NASA's Goddard Engineers Space Studies had concocted and fabricated, which you know what they've done. They've, they've taken that and made that. All I did was very calmly, this is, this is my first time on, on Prime TV as a, as a new member of the Senate. And they usually stack the audience with control side, left-wing side people as well to make sure you're feeling very uncomfortable. So then what happened was I said, well, Mr. Cox, you know, what you've done is you've shown a couple of things wrong with that graph. For a start, there's no 1998 El Nino peak. Where's it gone? And the other thing you, you're showing, not showing is the peak of 1930s and 1940s, which are high temperatures. And what you're not doing is you're not investigating that graph because it's produced by NASA's Goddard Engineer Space Studies, which has fabricated tampering with the data. Then he resorted to the usual work like, oh, and I suppose you don't believe in the moon landing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it all became an attack on Malcolm, which, which is wonderful. But I didn't say this at the time, but now if someone attacks me, I'll say, well, thank you very much, Tom, for, for, uh, for showing that I've just won the argument because you're, you're attacking me rather than my science. You're attacking me rather than present your data. So therefore you haven't got an argument. So I win the, I win the debate. But anyway, um, you know, the lefties loved him because he was taking hold of me because I was a threat to them because I was a fresh face in the Senate, really speaking strongly about uh, the climate scam, exposing it. So, yeah, it was just like that. One day when I, when I get around to it, I'll have to take every, every statement that he made in that and present the reality. So, but, you know, it's just little time. So that, that was my introduction to the um, world of, of the mouthpiece media. Now, in the Australian media right now, would they let you get on there and uh, talk at all about this or or not? <laughs> That's a very good question. No, there's no way they will. Most of the media is from the control side of politics, the left wing. Uh, the government uh, media, government radio and TV, are, uh, the ABC is uh, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. They're definitely uh, woke and from the control side of politics. They will not have me anywhere near them. Before I got into the Senate, well before, in 2013, I was sending material to a, a, an ABC compare named Steve Austin here in Brisbane and giving him the facts on, on climate and the corruption of climate science. And he sent me a, a challenge. He said, well, let's make sure you're not just a keyboard warrior. And if you're really a management consultant, I want you to analyze the CSIRO's latest report. So I did that and stunned him. And I came back with 850 pages of material, 20, 22 different appendices, but the report was self was short. It was only about 20 pages. And so I called him up one day and said, I'd like to come and see you because I've got that report ready and uh, fully referenced and everything. And he was stunned when we met in the studio. He was absolutely stunned. He said, I will read this. It's going to take me a while. It'll take me a couple of weeks, but I'll be back in touch with you. And because you've given it so much effort, I'm going to make sure you have at least a half hour in the studio with me to discuss it. So a month went by and I said, uh, I sent an email to him and said, what's happened, Steve? And he said, oh, that's right. That's right. 
um, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll get back to you. So another month went, another month went by, and he said, and I said, I haven't heard from you. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. I, I read it because I made a promise, didn't I? So I'll get you. Then the third, I think it was three times, I reminded him, and then he finally set the set the time. So here I am walking into the studio, and before him is a notorious climate misrepresenter called uh, Dr. Carl. He speaks bullshit, you know, but he pretends to be an expert and he's very emotional. And anyway, he's very good entertainer, but he speaks crap. So anyway, they made sure that he had a segment on climate before me. So the audience was well and truly primed. Then I went in there for a brief 10 minutes and I had two people standing on either side, big guy standing, and I'm a little guy standing beside me, you know, no intimidation, of course. So that, that's my half an hour got melted down to 10 minutes of biased interviews. And that's a, that's a really telling message because Steve Austin is one of the ABC's better interviewers. He's fairly neutral, but even he had to succumb to that. So I've also seen, we've got Mur Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News in America. He owns Sky News in Australia. It used to be somewhat uh, freedom side of politics, uh, right wing, but um, even the evening segments, which were freedom side are now somewhat woke in places one of their producers told me that she had been she saw my name on a list of people not to appear on sky news because what happens is i, I was on the first few weeks first few first couple of weeks of my time in the senate in 2016 with no media experience i was on the abc programs three flagship programs landline it doesn't mean anything to you in insiders and uh, q a as i told you and they were all to try and knock me off and they didn't. So when they tried to embarrass me and failed, they then were very wary of me. Um, and I even had their, uh, what was her name? She was a top comp, Amarici. Anyway, she was going at me pretty hard on, on TV and I was just calm and, and I just responded to her questions with facts. Sometimes halfway through, she'd cut me off and go to the next question. And, and then when, when she asked me, when I answered the next question, I'd just say, well, Emma, that's right, Emma Alberici. I said, Emma, let's come back to the previous question because I didn't quite finish answering that. So I was very, very calm. And she was notorious for being fairly aggressive. And at the end of the show, Tom, you could see her. She just went, anything else you'd like to say, go to it. And I talked for about two minutes. So, you know, so long as you stay respectful, have the facts, eventually they either, they either stop or they give you an opportunity. But I've rarely been on the ABC since then. I've rarely been on Sky News. I've, I won't be on the, the left what, Channel 9, Channel 7. So that's, that's just the way that the mouthpiece media is owned by the same people pushing and benefiting from the climate scam. So they're not going to have someone on who's speaking. Even Murdoch is somewhat controlled, you know, after the... After the COVID scam, he tried to get, I understand they tried to get rid of Tucker Carlson. That backfired on him. He, you know, he's, he's got the best ratings in America, I understand. I'd like to talk about the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industry Research Organization, which is a government entity that was formed, I think, in the 40, in 1940s to be the scientific agency for the government. This is what has been advising, supposedly advising the federal government on climate policy, both the Labor Party and, and the Greens Party coalition government and the liberal nationals when they're in power. So when I first got into the Senate, before I was sworn in, Tom, I drafted a letter to the CSIRO's chief executive. I didn't know if I could do it or not, but I thought I'm going to give it a go. The moment I was sworn in as a senator, I officially became senator. I raced up to my office, signed the letter and off it went. We didn't hear back from them. 
So two days before the due date that I gave them, my deadline for them to give a presentation to my office to me on, on climate science and the need to cut carbon dioxide. And I'll, I'll tell you more about the details in a minute. We hadn't heard from them. So I got one of my staff to call them. And the CSIRO said, yes, yes, we'll be there. We'll be there. Okay. The next day, the day after they told me they'd be there and the day before they were due to be there, they sent a message saying, we're not coming. So I got hold of the minister, uh, the secretary, if you like, and, and, uh, and another member of the Senate. And the CSIRO then said, well, we can give a presentation to you, but not tomorrow. Well, let's set a date. And there's nowhere they could, they could accommodate a date with me in Canberra, which is where they're headquartered, where they're based and their climate science team is in, in Canberra, which is also where the Senate is. So eventually I pinned them down to a day in Sydney in a Qantas uh, airport lounge. And they gave us a presentation. And I said, the topic of the presentation is, I want the empirical scientific evidence that shows that carbon dioxide from human activity is a danger. And I want you to present your science. And, and another very useful, um, colleague on uh, climate skepticism in this country is Peter Bobroff. Now he's a very quiet person, but he is a phenomenal intellect. He's got a, he's got an order of Australia medal, which is equivalent of a knighthood for uh, services to research. But the guy is just a phenomenal intellect, but more importantly, no ego, unemotional, just very, very calm and objective. Anyway, so here we are in Sydney listening to the CSIRO and the CSIRO has been referred to by ministers on both sides of politics as the agency that has given them the evidence that they need to push climate policies and energy policies. Okay. So I'm sitting there and we started off the meeting and I said, I'd like to record this. Oh no, 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 you can't record it. Oh no. Why not? It'll only be for internal use for our own assessment. So we can go back and make sure we haven't misunderstood. They had no choice. They let us record it. And we honored that we didn't, we didn't spread it around, but during the course of that, their presentation, I said to them, so why are you guys saying that climate, that, that carbon dioxide from human activities are danger? And they said to me, no, 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 we've never said that. Oh, really? The politicians tell us you have said that to them. Oh no, you better go and ask the politicians about that one. So we learned that carbon dioxide from human activity is not a danger. Oh, that the CSIRO has never said that. I also held the chief scientist accountable and I met with the chief scientist and the chief scientist, there's only a meter between us across a small table in the, um, in the science minister's office and the science minister, Senadinus was there. And the chief scientist was, I think he's an engineer, electrical engineer at the time, Dr. Alan Finkel. He'd been running around the country saying, we've got to cut human carbon dioxide. We've got to shut power, say all this kind of stuff, you know? So, okay, chief scientist, away you go. So he started and he started on monologue and he's speaking complete crap. And after 20 minutes, Peter Bobroff was with me and he just said, asked a very simple, sensible question. And I'll always remember this. The chief scientist looked at me and said, I'm not a climate scientist and I don't understand it. And I went, wow, wow. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, what we need to do now is have a proper discussion on climate science. So I want to set a time and a date in which you can come and give me a presentation on the climate science and we can have a genuine discussion that was agreed to the date was set. And as we were, as we were finishing off the, the little meeting, the chief scientist said to me, can I bring a scientist? 
I said, you can bring anyone you want. We don't care who it is, just bring anyone you want. So that date was set. And about two weeks before the date, the due date, Tom, we got a message from the, the uh, science minister who said that the chief scientist is overseas. Therefore, we won't have that meeting. Now, the man came back and he was not due to be overseas for the rest of his life. So I would have thought that they'd set a meeting. But instead, what they chose to do was set a second meeting with the CSIRO. So the CSIRO, and by the way, in, uh, in, in the first meeting we had with the CSIRO, after 45, 48 years of research on climate science, the government's top agency on climate science presented us with one paper on temperatures, one paper and one paper on carbon dioxide. The paper by, uh, on temperatures was by Marcotte, 2013. Oh, you geez. familiar? I am. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Complete crap, right? And Steve McIntyre destroyed that paper within two weeks, so much so that the, the lead author, um, Marcotte himself, said publicly, admitted publicly, that the 20th century temperature stack that they relied on for their paper cannot be relied upon. What did he say? It's not robust. <laughs> and, and so we questioned them on, the, on Marcotte and absolutely destroyed their Marcotte paper completely crushed it so much so that they effectively withdrew it. They never referred to it again. Wow. Um, but what it showed us was that they didn't understand market paper himself. They didn't understand the scrutiny had been put under and it had failed. They did not do the due, due diligence on the paper. They just gave us a piece of crap. The, the paper on uh, carbon dioxide was by Harry's 2001. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I don't know that one. It's complete rubbish. Again, Peter Bobroff tore that to shreds in front of them in front of them, just dismantled it. Anyway, what, what, we've, what we learned from the second presentation was that they admitted to me that their, their acting chief climate scientist was sitting next to me and he looked at me and said, today's temperatures are not unprecedented. The way this climate change started in this country was unprecedented global warming. It was all about warming and nothing else. We were told it was unprecedented unusual and ongoing and highly damaging in the future. And here he is telling me that the temperatures are not unprecedented. <laughs> so that's the second thing we learned. Then they, they made such a, uh, and they presented another paper called Le Cavalier 2017. Oh. It was their sole paper on temperatures. Again, to replace Marcotte, right? Peter Bobroff destroyed that completely. <laughs> it's pure bullshit. And then they presented another paper on carbon dioxide to replace the disgrace with Harry's. And that was Feldman 2015. Which it had, a, which it had a number of improvements, but it was still not proof, right? So then they requested a third presentation. So I've had two and a half, two and a half hour, three two and a half hour presentations from these these people. They have never presented any specific impact of carbon dioxide from human activity on any climate or weather variables such as temperature, rainfall, droughts, floods, storms, ocean alkalinity. Yet these are fundamental as a valid basis for climate policy and legislation, Tom. These are fundamental, there's no basis. The CSIRO admitted, as I said, that today's temperatures are not unprecedented. The CSIRO then claimed, oh no, we didn't mean temperature, we meant rate of temperature. Well, Tom, the temperature has been basically flat since 1995, according to the satellite data, and, the, and, and the, this, even the undistorted ground-based data shows no significant warming. And yet look at the level of human carbon dioxide being produced. It's been astronomical. And we see that the longest period of temperature trend in the last 160 years was the 40 years of 
slight cooling from 1930s, 1936 to 1976, at a time when the Second World War and the post-war economic boom drove massive increases in human output of carbon dioxide. And we had a cooling. We know that in this country, temperatures in Australia today are cooler than in the 1880s and 1890s. But the Bureau of Meteorology, our corrupt government entity, Weather, Weather uh, Meteorological Office, only releases the temperatures from 1910 onwards. And 1910 was the lowest temperature we've ever had for, for many, many years. So they omit the high temperatures and start with the low temperatures. And then they distort the temperatures so that what appears to be a cooling in some weather stations has been magnified into an, has been mod, modified into an, an warming. So their, their, their claim of unprecedented rate of temperature rise doesn't stack up empirically. Um, they never once presented any logical scientific points, which means empirical scientific evidence, data, observations, within a logical scientific framework that proves cause and effect. Not once did they do that. They went to models, computerized models, erroneous, unvalidated, all unvalidated. The first question was about danger. Present me with the empirical evidence showing there's a danger, which they failed to do. The second one was about show us anything, anything at all, unprecedented in climate, anything, and show us that it, it was caused by um, carbon dioxide from human activity, failed. Third one, we said, look, let's make it really easy. This was in Senate estimates now, sorry, this Senate estimates, which is not, not one of the three hearings. Um, we said, all we want is statistically significant empirical evidence that shows there's been a change in climate, anything, anything you want. And they failed to do that. They cannot show that there's temperatures changed significantly. They statistically significant way. They cannot show drought has changed in a statistically significant way. So therefore there's not even any change, let alone pin, pin the, attribute the cause to human carbon dioxide. They initially, as I said, relied upon one discredited erroneous paper on temperature, which we knew was discredited. Globally, we've known it's discredited, discredited since 2013. That's what our scientific agencies talked about. They admitted during our cross-examination that this was, they'd never done due diligence on the papers they gave to us. They'd never done due diligence on the data they relied upon from external agencies. They showed very little understanding of the evidence that they, of the papers they gave us. They, they will not hold politicians and journalists accountable who misrepresent climate. And they, they also misled the parliament. So that's, that's what we've got as, as so-called scientists. There's something else. Oh, that's right. This is significant for people in America and people globally because, now I'm not bragging when I say this, but I, I, I do repeat it a lot because Tim Ball said to me that I'm the only politician or member of Congress that has cross-examined the government science agency on climate anywhere in the world. Now, people like Ted Cruz and a few other congressmen in America have had Senate hearings and had raised a few questions, but no one has pursued relentlessly their scientific agency. No one. That's not to puff out my chest and say, look at me, how good I am. That is to say all of these politicians in Congresses, parliaments around the world have not done their job. It's been a mass political movement, a media movement orchestrated by the United Nations, not based on science. Nowhere, I can say this very confidently because I've analyzed every IPCC report until I haven't done the latest one, number six, but up until then I've done them all. And I've talked to someone who is um, scientific 
and and she's read the the sixth sixth uh, report and there's nothing there never once has the ipcc presented any evidence as you know never once they rely upon lies and models failed unvalidated erroneous models no agency anywhere in the world i've held um gavin schmidt accountable on in writing as a senator for yeah you laugh when i mention his name <laughs> i do laugh i do we challenged him with uh his, his nasa's got out into his space studies corruption of the climate of the temperature data around iceland in the course of the conversation he let slip something that we knew and you know there's one database of earth-based ground-based measurements temperature measurements the rest are fabricated off that nasa's is the same noah's is the same this one is the same hadcrud is the same they're all based upon the ghcn and they're all corrupt in the course of his um, i asked him why why he's letting his his agency corrupt the temperature data and he said well it's actually not us it's noah and i said well thank you very much for admitting what we've known that there are there's only one temperature database he never replied to me again since then these people have got no shame they tell fabricated misrepresentations to to spread the alarm on climate but there's nothing to back them up god i didn't use space study as you know from tony heller has completely corrupted the data completely corrupted it and and they they've even under james hansen i believe they've even uh created measurements in the arctic where there's never been a measurement station so yeah. what i'm saying is that there's never been anyone who's analyzed who's pursued and held accountable a government data agency until i've come along the csiro that i've held accountable has been one of the prominent contributors to the ipcc reports and they haven't got any evidence none at all then what we see is okay well what's driven it i made a submission recently to the senate inquiry into uh, the climate climate change bill that the, the current government has just put in place there are a few um four attachments in particular that are short they're only two pages each but they explain what's going on i've summarized what the csiro has done and what i've done with the bureau of meteorology in one attachment attachment two but i go through a point in attachment one so i said there's been no scientific evidence so let's have a look at where, where it's sourced this climate scam has been sourced in politics and it's been driven in politics so we need to go back now to john howard and john anderson in 1997 they were supposed conservatives they were supposed skeptics on climate but john howard wanted to comply with his government wanted to comply with the united nations 1997 kyoto protocol so they said publicly they would not sign it and australia and america were the two countries major countries that did not sign it until 2007 in the case of australia so john howard said he wouldn't sign it but he said he would comply with it so he had a problem because to comply with the un's kyoto protocol you have to shut down power stations manufacturing plants cars agriculture etc you have to just shut down some of that that so what he did was first of all he introduced the renewable energy target which requires mandates the use of solar and wind that has dramatically increased the cost of electricity in this country he introduced it at 2% renewable energy target it's now around about 43% okay it's not at 43% but that's the target it's at somewhere in the in the high 20s that has gutted our electricity sector john howard came out uh 2 years ago saying that he regrets that he he was also the first federal party not the socialists he was the first party his was the first party to have a policy calling for an emissions trading scheme john howard's leadership 
carbon dioxide tax. Then he also had a problem because to comply with the UN's Kyoto Protocol and shut down power stations and reduce the production of carbon dioxide, the public would have been in revolt because they weren't ready for it back in 1997. So what he did, what his government did, was they did a deal with the United Nations whereby they agreed to stop the clearing of farmers' land because that could be a sink. So you get the idea. Instead of shutting production, they will stop the clearing, which can absorb more carbon dioxide. The UN bought that. Now, the problem that John Howard had, and remember, he came from the so-called freedom side of politics, the right-wing side, the conservative side, is that he was a strong believer, supposedly, in the sanctity of private property rights. If a farmer buys a plot of land and wants to, wants to make half of it, 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 he raises, he uses it for running just, just bush and just running cattle, and he wants to upgrade it and grow wheat, that's his entitlement. That's his right under, under secure property rights. What John Howard did, what his government did, was by stopping the clearing of land, they took away those fundamental property rights. So here was our property rights advocates stealing property rights. They had a problem because Section 51, Clause 31 of the Constitution in Australia says that if the federal government interferes with property rights, they must pay just terms compensation. Well, this would have resulted in hundreds of billions of dollars of compensation. So what John Howard's government did was they did a deal, and we've seen the correspondence in writing with the left-wing premier of Queensland State at the time, Peter Beattie, in which Peter Beattie said, we will agree to implement native vegetation clearing restrictions on farmers so that you can commit, so that you can meet your commitments to Kyoto. So it's in writing. We also saw it on a, on a video from the New South Wales Premier, Bob Carr, gloating, saying that we will happily steal farmers' property rights so that you can get control, so that you can comply with the UN's Kyoto Protocol. So what we have is a so-called conservative freedom side of politics, stealing secure property rights, telling a lie to go around the constitution. The whole constitution has been bypassed. So here we are, Six, that was in 2007, John Howard was booted from office. Not only did he lose government, he was booted from his own electorate. So he lost even the right to be, be in parliament. Six years later, Tom, John Howard was invited by the Global Warming Policy Foundation, you'd be familiar with them, yes. who are skeptic in their approach on economics. They stick mainly to the economics. And he stood up and he gave them their annual lecture for 2013. And in that lecture, in writing, he says, this is six years after he's gutted our country and installed the mechanism for future Labor prime, prime Ministers to destroy our electricity sector. He said, on the matter of climate science, I am agnostic. He didn't have the science. He did not have the science, but he drove this, and here he was, the conservative side. Now, when he left and the Labor Party came in, they had another liar in the form of Kevin Rudd, who claimed there were 4,000 scientists running around the planet saying we've got to do something about climate. We know that that is a complete lie. I wrote to the Prime Minister at the time before I got into the Senate, exposing that, giving them figures from the UN as to how many, and I, I can go into that if you need, but it's not important. But Rudd turbocharged what Howard started. The renewable energy target went up dramatically. Then, then what we had was the Labor government got the boot they promised not to put in place carbon dioxide tax in the election. 
But during the during the the period in government, they enacted a labour uh, carbon dioxide tax because the Greens wanted them to. The the population did not forgive them. They booted them out of office in a in a significant victory. The incoming prime minister Tony Abbott rescinded the carbon dioxide tax, which was wonderful. And then, lo and behold, they agreed to the Paris Agreement in 2015. So the Liberal Party was enacting the 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 Paris Agreement. Then in 20, then in 2019, uh, 2020, Scott Morrison, another Liberal Prime Minister, signed up for the 2050 Net Zero Plan from the UN. So what we've got here is a is the right wings who are supposed to be the conservatives and the skeptics on climate enacting the major drivers of policy and legislation pushing the climate pushing the climate scam, and then the Labor Party each time has come in and ramped it up. This Labor Party government that's come in now has just dramatically increased the renewable energy target to an economy destroying 43%. We talk of going higher. So what we have, I've challenged the Greens in the, in the Senate repeatedly. I've challenged them before I got into the Senate in 2010 to a debate with me on climate science and the corruption of climate science. They have never debated me. I've asked them to present their, the data on which they base their claims for, for climate policies. They've never presented any. So what we've seen here is an entirely absence of uh, science and replaced entirely with politically driven lies. But I'd, I'd like to just finish with one thing. If you have a look at the experiments that have been conducted, now you didn't know there have been experiments conducted, had you? I did not. There's global experiments twice conducted on whether or not carbon dioxide from human activity has an effect. In 2008, we had the global financial crisis right near the end of the year. In 2009, we had a dramatic, almost a depression, but it was a severe recession worldwide. Now, Australia didn't, didn't suffer because we had, our economy didn't go into recession because we kept exporting minerals. Yeah. But we're one of the few developed countries that did not have a severe recession. The rest of the world had a severe recession. In a severe recession, the use of hydrocarbon fuels decreases, coal, oil, natural gas, because energy demand is less needed because there's less energy used. So that meant the use of hydrocarbon fuels went down. That also meant that the carbon dioxide from human activity went down. So I know you know the answer to this question. What happened to the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? It kept increasing. Yeah. Not only did it not decrease, yeah, yeah, it yeah. kept increasing. In 2020, we had a global recession, almost a depression due to the COVID restrictions. Again, a dishonest UN-driven COVID restrictions. The level of carbon dioxide from human activity decreased dramatically. What happened to the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? It kept increasing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Tim Ball, you know, explained to me, and I, and I worked out through Henry's law, that we cannot affect the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because the oceans control that. The oceans, according to the UN IPCC, contain in dissolved form about 50 to 70 times more carbon dioxide than is in the Earth's entire atmosphere. Slight changes in temperature of the oceans lead to either release of carbon dioxide or absorption of carbon dioxide. If the oceans cool, it absorbs. If the oceans warm, it, it, it releases carbon dioxide. We see that in the annual temperature rise, even though it's rising overall, the carbon dioxide cycle shows a cyclical pattern annually based upon the areas of ocean surface exposed in the Southern hemisphere versus Northern hemisphere, and also to do with the vegetation in the Northern hemisphere being deciduous. So what we've seen is that proof that human carbon dioxide 
will not affect the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So what that means is that it doesn't matter if we gut our industry, we will make no, no difference to the level of carbon dioxide in the, in the atmosphere. That's if you assume that the level of that the temperature depends upon the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There has never been any proof of that at all. And in fact, the, the, the longer climate records, the paleoclimate records indicate that carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are a consequence of the temperature, not a, not a driver of the temperature. Mm. Now, you can't say that unilaterally because in some cases that doesn't fit, but we know that it's much more likely the temperature controls carbon dioxide from Henry's law, from what we see around us, uh, from what we see in the paleoclimate record, the temperature drives carbon dioxide. I mean, remarkable exceptions with that. So the whole thing has been, has been disproven by, um, by two remarkable global experiments conducted around the world. And there you go. I do have one question here. I, there, the story is, is that uh, for maybe hundreds of thousands of years before 1850, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere was maybe 280. Uh, do you not even believe that part of it? Because I don't know. Uh, do you think it was fluctuating between 280 and 500 or something many a time uh, during that period before 1850? Well, it certainly has been fluctuating because nature controls the level. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly in the past, and it's a very good question, it raises another topic. Two groups of scientists that are important in, in climate studies. One is the, the atmospheric physicists. Okay, we, we accept that and meteorologists, we accept all that. The other group are paleoclimatologists and geologists because they understand the past. Many times it's happened in the past. And in places, Ian Plymer has been suggesting, we got closer to the extinction of plants on this planet by which, which would occur if carbon dioxide was below 0.015. I don't use parts per million because, because the current level of carbon dioxide is 0.015. 0.04, a little bit above that. 0.04 demonstrates the core point about carbon dioxide. It is a colorless, odorless, tasteless, non-toxic, essential to life, traced gas. It is a trace gas because there's bugger all of it. When we say 0.04%, it conveys accurately what it is. When we say 400 parts per million sounds, oh my God, that's a huge <laughs> amount. Well, it's not. So it has been fluctuating many times in the past. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ernst George Beck, the I German not. scientist. Okay, he, 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 he went back through the chemical, they used to measure levels of carbon dioxide using chemical means. And that was done since 19th century, maybe uh, as early as 1830, I think. What he did was he went back through the records prominent scientists had kept, including scientists who won Nobel Prize awards. And he shows that before industrialization or early in industrialization, I can't remember the year, 1840, 1860, something like that. The level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was measured at around about 0.06, 50% higher than, than today before yeah. massive industrialization. And there's something else kind of rattling around in the back of my mind about this as well. Oh, that's right. If you look at, uh, Peter Bobroff has found this, there's a satellite record on the internet, readily available. It shows that the level of carbon dioxide varies enormously from hour to hour, day to day. The, this, the belief that Mauna Loa represents the 
global level of carbon dioxide is pure rubbish. Because, and, and then we also find that the highest level of concentration of CO2 is above the Amazon. Go and work that one out. Yet, you know, we're, we're told trees um, absorb carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. So above the Amazon rainforest, we have the highest levels of carbon dioxide, but it varies so much around the world. But you're right, the CO2, Ernst George Beck showed enormous fluctuation in carbon dioxide levels measured by very accurate means uh, for over a hundred years. So I'd also like, just while I'm at it, I just remembered something new that I've got. I asked um, the minister representing this, the uh, Minister for Climate Change and Energy in the, in the Senate, Senator McAllister, a question during a debate on a bill recently, Tom, and I said to her, where's your logical scientific points that are the basis of this bill? And by logical scientific points, I'll say it again, I mean empirical data within a framework that proves scientifically cause and effect. So she came back a few hours later and she cited and tabled a speech that she gave in 2016 in response to my statement earlier in 2016. Remember, this is her tabling it on the 20th. Uh, her speech from Monday, the 21st of November 2016 was tabled in the debate in September on the 8th of September in committee. She said, quote, in that speech, here are the 20 most cited peer-reviewed papers about climate change and its effects. Okay, that was her way of conveying evidence to me. Wait for it, Tom. Compiled, she said, by Thomson Reuters. <laughs> and these papers, quote, that expressed a view on climate change. So these are the 20 most cited peer-reviewed papers about climate change and its effects compiled by Thomson Reuters that expressed a view on climate change. So I'll just read three. Tell me what's wrong with this. This is an illustrative sample of the titles of the papers she provided. Biological response to climate change on a tropical mountain. Second paper, predicting the, predicting the impacts of climate change on the distribution of species. Third one, ecological responses to recent climate change. These are not, not uh, demonstrating cause and effect. They're not even discussing effects. They're not even discussing causes. They're purely effects, in some cases, predicted impacts. So it's complete rubbish. She, she gave me 20 papers plus another five, which she listed separately. There they are. There, the, there are her, her, her 25 papers. So let's go through some of the data on this. I've read all the 20 papers plus the five additional ones she cited. There's none, none that contains logical scientific points proving that carbon dioxide from human activity has any effect on any climate factor. Nothing. Many of the cited papers do not discuss human causation of climate variability. One paper specifically questions whether climate variability is due to humans or is natural. 11 of the 20 papers and three of the additional five papers rely on numerical models, not empirical scientific evidence. Another paper reinforces natural drivers and oscillations driving climate variability and admits that climate drivers are poorly understood and questions whether human activity drives climate. None of the papers, this minister pushing a, an, an energy gutting bill contains logical scientific points providing the empirical scientific evidence proving that carbon dioxide from human activity affects climate 
any climate factor such as temperature. So I've exposed the CSIRO over a number of years. This is the very latest that we've got from our government, complete crap. To me, it's just completely mind-blowing that this scam is still alive uh, 35 years after James Hansen was sweating there in the Senate. The evidence is so flimsy, non-existent. But uh, well, are you, you're hoping it's going to die soon, right? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll make sure it does. You've seen this? I have not seen that, no. That's Agenda 21, for those who can't read it, that summit, Rio de Janeiro Declaration. That's when Maria, Marie Strong, you're familiar with Marie Strong? Yes, yeah. Yep. Okay, Marie Strong is the fabricator, the concoctor of this climate scam. We know that. It all comes back to Marie Strong. Marie Strong got government agencies around the world involved in that. Marie Strong was an exceptionally intelligent person, but he was also a crook and he was basically a criminal. And he was an exceptional networker. He was able to pull people together, twist their arms and do things that no one else could. And Marie Strong had two aims. He publicly stated these aims. One was to put in place an unelected socialist global governance. And the other was to deindustrialize Western civilization. Deindustrialize yes. Western civilization. The Earth Summit is something he orchestrated in Rio de Janeiro, the meeting in, uh, 1992 in, in Brazil, he introduced Agenda 21. Agenda 21 stands for 21st century global governance. This is his blueprint for global governance. In the uh, foreword, Marie Strong says, there is much to be done. And I look to the new United Nations Commission on Sustainable Development, which came out of this, to be the focal point for the massive effort needed to create the new era of international cooperation, the new global partnership that will make this shift possible. And then they go on to talk about new world order and so on. In the introduction, they say agenda 21 stands as a comprehensive blueprint for action to be taken globally from now, that's 1992, into the 21st century by governments, United Nations organizations, development agencies, non-governmental organizations and independent sector groups in every area in which human activity impacts on the environment. The agenda should be studied in conjunction with both the Rio Declaration, which provides a context for its specific proposals and the statement of forest principles. It is hoped that the forest principles will form the basis for a future international level agreement. People who've watched corporations being controlled by one or two people recognize that you can govern an entity without being elected. You can govern a country without being elected. Your country, um, and I admire, I'm, I'm starting to get a bit teary, I admire what, the, what America did because whenever I've traveled in America, and I've lived and worked there and traveled through all 50 states. I've, I've lived and worked there and studied there for five years. I've been stunned by the quality of your founding fathers. And your country constitution was examined by our founding fathers. So America gave us the Senate. America gave us the, 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 the structure of government that we enjoy in our country. When American, America's founding fathers was, were coming together to, to discuss their constitution, they looked at Europe and said, we don't want that. In Europe, what they saw was two things. Well, they saw much, many things, but, but they saw two things they de particularly detested. One was central governments. And the other one was unelected, privately owned central banks that controlled currency and de facto controlled central governments. So what the Americans did, what you did, was you came up with a federation of sovereign independent states and you formed a nation and you restricted the central duties to just a few 
defense, um, border protection, trade, etc. The majority of services, I don't like government providing services, but the majority of services were to be provided by the states. And the states had complete independence about how they did that. That's why you have different taxations, different taxation levels in different states. And you're even, you even took your governance down to the local level where you have local government that is responsible and has its own tax base. What you did was you, expo you, you, you said that we don't want privately owned central banks. Within a very short period, Jefferson relented and, and he allowed, I think it was Hamilton, to have the first Sorry. privately owned central bank. After 20 years, this charter wasn't, was revoked because it was so dangerous. Then, then they, the globalist banks started working on getting a second one in. They got a second one in. I think it was the second central bank of America. What's his name? Andrew Jackson uh, survived an assassination attempt to get rid of that. And he got rid of that. And then the moment they got rid of that, they started on the third one, which came into place through deceit in 1913, as did the IRS, the Federal Reserve Bank of America, which we know is privately owned. And that has been influential around the world. So a series of major corporations basically control the de facto global currency, which is at the moment the US dollar. And so what we've got is control. And we've also got Ron Paul, who I admire enormously. He wrote a book called End the Fed. Very short, simple, easy to read book. And Ron Paul does high quality work, in my opinion. He said that every major recession, every major war since 1913 is directly attributable to the United States Federal Reserve. What has happened, and I think there are signs of it happening at the moment, is that the Federal Reserve Bank floods the joint with money. People invest over the limits, over their capacity. They then jack up interest rates, contract the money supply, and people foreclose and they take the assets. This is the way the Federal Reserve Bank has been working for the corporations who own them against the wishes of the United States people. So what we've got is those same corporations, BlackRock, Vanguard, developed the UN to be their globalist predators. The UN puts this in. We've also got the World Economic Forum, which was formed in 1971 which is pushing the same globalist agenda. In 2018, we got, an, we got a, um, an alliance formed between the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. We've also got the World Wildlife Fund, which is an activist organization that is trying to shut down beef, trying to shut down coal. It's trying to shut down energy in, in your country and in our country. And it is working very hard to shut down the beef industry in your country. So you asked about beef, energy, property, this is what's happening. It's a coordinated campaign. The Club of Rome has been pushing the bullshit that humans are greedy, rapacious, uncaring, irresponsible, and need to be need to be controlled and stopped. The agenda, Tom, is about control and about wealth transfer. What they want to do, they're talking now about electric cars. What they want is no cars. Yes. Electric cars are prohibitively expensive. Physics will tell us, tells us that they will always be expensive because of their consumption of resources and energy in their manufacture. Huge. they are blights on the atmosphere, on the environment when it comes to, dis when it comes to um, disposing of them when they're finished. We've got a perfectly good system with internal combustion. It causes minimal pollution in the form of sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide particulates. Carbon dioxide that's produced is not a problem at all. Water vapor that comes out of, a few, uh, out of an exhaust pipe is not a problem at all. 
And so what we've got is we've got entities that want to control humans. They want us to go on to electric vehicles, which would be prohibitively expensive for most people. Most people won't be able to afford them. They'll have to rely on public transport control. You've got California and other lunatic areas in, in the world. We've got our capital territory and your equivalent of DC now legislating that electric vehicles will only will, will only electric vehicles will be sold after a certain period. So we've got that. We've got control of our water supply in this country to farmers has been stolen by overseas interest as a result of the John Howard Agreement bringing in a Water Act. One of the primary purposes of the Water Act was to comply with international agreements. What the hell are we doing putting something like that in legislation in our country? We've got um, uh, property rights being stolen. So they're now controlling more of agriculture. So they're controlling our food supply. They're controlling our water supply. They're controlling our energy supply because of 2050 net zero. They're gutting our electricity. So what they're after is not different energy. They're after minimal energy and control of energy. Everything about the United Nations, when you peer below the surface, is about controlling people. Everything about the World Economic Forum is about controlling people. The World Economic Forum has been pushing a digital identity, um, social credit system. It's been pushing a, uh, what do they call them, central bank uh, digital currencies. These are all about controlling. Henry Kissinger said, if you can control food, if you can control currency, if you can control energy, you control the people. They're well on the way, they do control currency. They're well on the way to controlling energy. They're well on the way to controlling food. They're well on the way to controlling something Kissinger didn't even raise. And he was an arch, he was a strong globalist. He was a sellout to your country. They're well on the way to controlling people's identity and through electronic means controlling what we can and can't do. The World Economic Forum is even Uval Harari, uh, who's an advisor to uh, Klaus Schwab, has even lauded the benefits of implanting humans with chips. I mean, these people are just lunatics, but this is highly dangerous. That's why we come back to the start of this discussion. My aims were to protect freedom, are to protect freedom, restore scientific integrity, uh, protect the natural environment, protect our economic environment, and restore the spiritual connection with nature. These bastards are wanting to take us away. It's up to people like you and me to make sure we get it back. Okay, fantastic. Uh, any other points you'd like to make? No, I think that's about, about it. I better get back to work now. <laughs> oh, this is great stuff. So I really appreciate you taking all this time and I can't wait to get this uh, up online and let people comment on it. But thank you very much. Let me know when it, when it comes up, uh, please, Tom. And, and thank you so much for what you're doing because the, the mouthpiece media is owned by the global predators, the Black Rocks, the Vanguards and their buddies. They're the same people who are pushing the climate lies, the same people who are pushing the COVID lies, the same people who are pushing the United Nations World Health Organization's attempt to put in place a treaty whereby the United Nations bureaucrats will control your health in America, our health in Australia, digital currencies. It's all coming from the mouthpiece media. People in this country are switching off the mouthpiece media and they're starting to turn to podcasters. And that's where I, I really want to com- compliment you for what you're doing because this is the only way we're getting truth out the new, independent, truth-seeking, freedom-pushing people's media. So thank you so much for what you're doing, and I'll keep retweeting you. Sounds great. All right. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time. Uh, Malcolm Roberts. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, Tom.